Welcome to the Cato Institute. I'm Ian Vasquez. I direct the project on global economic liberty here. We're now at least 15 to 25 years, depending on how you count, into the current era of globalization. And although the clear lesson of this time period is that the market has has won in its, its 20th century contest against socialism, the world is far from having established an international economic order. And certainly people have drawn differing lessons from the changes in the world economy during this time. And we've seen some countries move away from the market, some have been muddling through, and some have been moving fast ahead. I would say that uh, Latin America, for example, uh, is, is a region that uh, has done all three, depending on which country you look at and what time period uh, you're looking at. So what are we to make of this context? Those of us who consider ourselves market liberals have for some time been documenting how the lack of reforms or how half-hearted measures uh, or how uh, good policies combined with uh, reckless policies have been responsible for so much uh, of, the, of the problems that we see in the developing world and how oftentimes that has resulted in economic crises or even a backlash against the market economy itself. So it's my pleasure today to have two exp experts with us who will discuss this context and what's been going on and what should be going on in terms of policy. And they've been weighing in over the years on the very fierce debates that have developed over poverty, over growth, inequality, and the role of international organizations in economic development. And it's especially my honor to welcome back Cato adjunct scholar Deepak Lal to the Cato Institute. He's one of the most accomplished uh, development economists of our time. For at least three decades, Deepak has been a development practitioner and has been writing about development from a classical liberal perspective. Even before it was fashionable in the late uh, 70s and early 1980s, he was uh, warning against the dangers of dirigism and about the poverty of development economics, the title of one of his books. But with the fall of socialism, uh, Deepak has been warning uh, now that the old dirigism has been replaced with a new dirigism. That is, the impulse on the part of many to acknowledge that the market works best, but then to qualify that acknowledgement by calling for so many measures, regulations, and policies to supposedly adjust the market so as to undermine the market process itself and belie an understanding of it. As anybody who reads this book, uh, the one that he's just published, Reviving the Invisible Hand, and is familiar with Deepak's past writings is aware, Deepak is not concerned only with economic development in the past 30 to 50 years or even in the past 200 years. Indeed, he is not uh, only concerned with economics, but is one of the few truly interdisciplinary uh, academics who takes a, uh, that approach to development, looking at history over the past 1,000 years, looking at culture, anthropology, religion, even biology, uh, as you will note from his book, in his search for why some countries are rich and others poor, and why those clues matter to the current uh, policy debates today. Deepak is a professor of international development at the University of California at Los Angeles. He has previously been a research, the research administrator at the World Bank. He has advised many governments all over the world over the past several decades. He is the author of numerous uh, policy uh, 
articles and academic articles and numerous books, including Unintended Consequences and The Political Economy of Poverty, Equity, and Growth. Please help me welcome Deepak Law. Thanks, Ian. Uh, uh, the best way, I think, to, to introduce this book is to tell you why, why I wrote it. In fact, it summarizes much of what I've been working on and various other books I've published over the last decade. Uh, I wrote a book, which Ian mentioned, in the early 80s called The Poverty Development Economics. This was really addressed to developing countries, trying to, you know, trying to convince them that this uh, Didigi's dogma, as I call, called it, which is being pro propagated not just by policymakers, but by, by the clerisy, why that was very dangerous and it damaged their uh, prospects. And that's still been in print, but you know, I've been up updating it, etc. But really, it's really completely out of date, partly because most developing countries, believe it or not, despite swings every now and then towards uh, the other side, have really accepted that. And oddly enough now, it's the countries which rhetorically espouse uh, classical liberalism, I suppose, free trade, laissez-faire, and all that, which, in fact, are now holding back this, uh, this process. And so I started thinking about this, and it turns out that when you read, the, you read you know, what now goes for, for intellectual debate in many areas, there's a new sort of, I call it the new dirigis, and this takes very strange forms. Uh, and try to de decode, you know, words like, I mean, I, in Britain, where I live part of the year, there are all these words floating around, stakeholders, social exclusion, now happiness, and all this sort of stuff. And, you know, people start wondering, what on earth has all, 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 all this got to do with producing your meat and getting it to your table efficiently, etc.? And when you start thinking of this in a long historical context, then it turns out that this is really just a new manifestation of... And I would call it an atavistic hatred of capitalists which, and capitalism, which has is, which is lasted through, through millennia. So that takes you back to ask the basic question, why on earth is, firstly, who are these capitalists? When did capitalism arise? Why is it hated? And uh, uh, is there, is, is, are many of these complaints justified? So that's one group. The other group, which I suppose the, the uh, main... Uh, proponents of that today, are political Islam, are what I call cultural nationalists. So you've got two groups who are anti-globalizers, or rather against globalizing capitalism, which is probably a better way of looking at it. Because globalization is a process which has been going on for millennia. It has been associated with the creation of some sort of imperial pacts. Globalization just means that you create a larger economic space geographically in which economic integration takes place and all the gains from trade, etc., which Adam Smith uh, laid down actually occur. And this has been happening right, right through human history. But capitalism is a relatively modern phenomenon. Now, there, there, oh, well, hundreds of people have tried to define what capitalism it, it is, etc. And most often people try to define this in terms of certain features. This is true of Marx, Weber, a lot of sociologists, economic historians, and what have you. But it turns out many of these so-called features of capitalism have existed for millennia. Here's a description. This is based on some Assyrian tablets which date to the 20th and 19th centuries BC. Okay? These reveal a complete commercial network run by genuine capitalists. In spite of state control or at least state interference, 
the Karum, which is entrepreneurs and commercial houses, where there were importers, exporters, provisioners, bankers, all conducted their affairs. These own commercial activities developed a series of institutions within which capitalist activity, as defined by Max Weber, took place. Banks undertook and granted loans. Large warehouses brought together the merchandise of groups of merchants. Bank accounts were opened where most of the operations were made by multilateral balancing accounts and so on and so forth. So in fact, and this you can find, the same features you can find across any, all the great Eurasian civilizations. So clearly capitalists have existed right through human history. Who were these capitalists? They were mainly merchants. Why were they needed? They were needed largely because these were agrarian societies in which, for various reasons, you had to move the rural surplus, coerced or not, to the towns to feed the warriors, priests, and other people, hangers-on who lived on there. So they were the intermediaries, and they've always been hated. So the question arises, firstly, who are these people, and why are they hated? Well, why they're hated is quite much easier to answer. Agrarian civilizations, you know, if they settled for many years, had discovered a way of life, which is attuned, a way of making a living, which was attuned to the seasons, soils, etc. So you now they'd, they'd learned how to produce goods, mainly agricultural products, in a way which took account of the natural variations uh, which would occur in that time and place. And here were these merchants, because the main thing about capitalists is, the best, best description of Schumpeter is, capitalists and capitalism involve, are involved in creative destruction. They're novelty seekers, constantly thinking of profit, turning things around. And this disturbs this safe, steady, you know, natural pace of life which agrarian civilizations had. So they've been hated. But who are these people? Now here, and this is a bit of value added in this book, which is not my others, uh, this I discovered from a, I have a colleague. Uh, he's the head of the Neuropsychiatric Institute. And he's interested in bipolarity, which is manic depression. He's re recently written a book, which I recommend very highly, called American Mania. And he was interested by the fact, he found certain features of, uh, you know, in extreme form, you find this amongst bipolar people, but you found, he found that amongst his, uh, many of his patients, also people, students hanging around, they showed, showed many of the same symptoms in milder form. And he came to believe that there's something peculiar about American society. It actually seemed to be suffering from what you might call generalized uh, bipolarity. Uh, so he then started thinking, why? Now we know for a fact that actually there's a, there's a special gene, quite rare, but there's a special gene which, uh, uh, which in some sense make pe people susceptible to, to, to bipolarity. <coughs> We've now got the genome charted, okay? And Cavallis Forza and his other associates, the geneticists at Stanford, have now also mapped this genetic, uh, genetic geographical map from all over the thing. Then some other people in UC Irvine then asked a simple question. We've got this, we've got this map of genes, you know, all over the place. We also have some histories of how these genes went over time, and they can do that. I don't know how, but they can. And then they asked the following question. We all know that the human ape, we all arose in, uh, in, in Africa, in the Rift Valley somewhere. Okay? But now they were spread all over the world. So the question they asked was, well, who are these people who started walking from the Rift Valley and ended up in Tierra del Fuga? Firstly, they must have, you know, because not everyone walked. And uh, this has been true of migrants throughout history. You know, terrible things happen, but on average, 
about 98 people you know, who are affected by all these horrible things happening to them, stay put, put up with the thing, and about two walk. So who were these people? They then charted, the, the hypothesis was, there must be some, you know, these, these must be risk takers, novelty seekers. Is there something common in their genetic inheritance? It turns out that they have the same gene which predis predisposes people to bipolarity. So if you chart, if you chart uh, where, uh, you know, if you, if you make this sort of chart, you would expect that this particular variant of a gene, I call it the migrant gene, just to, just to make it easier, that, that should be preponderant in places where you expected people walk the farthest. Well, where's, where do we now know the people? Well, anyone who went right down to the tip of South America surely must have a preponderance of gene, and sure enough, they do. They've got these, they've got these Stone Age tribes in, uh, I think, Colombia or Chile or something. They go right down, and they have the preponderance of gene. In Africa, apart from the Bantu, who, were, who are the main tribes, you know, who have migrated a lot across Africa, the others, this, this, hardly any, uh, uh, this gene is hardly pre pre prevalent at all. China, the overseas Chinese who migrated have a preponderance of the gene. The mainland China and Taiwan, the old Aboriginal population, don't have it. And Japan, it hardly exists at all. And so on and so forth. So there's clear evidence that the migrants in every society tend to have, uh, they tend to preponderantly have this gene. And of course that fits in. These migrants are novelty seekers, they're risk takers, and they, by and large, have been the entrepreneurs in most societies of this day. And uh, Weibra's thesis is that as America is a migrant country par excellence, not just one, because over time, if you have one set of migrants who over 3,000 years just stay put, then of course, you know, the genetic map will probably sort of change. But these are, this is constantly being, if you like, the supply of this migrant gene and this behavior, associated behavior, is being constantly replenished by new waves of migration. Okay, so my hypothesis is that in these much, that, you know, when you had these settled agriculture taking place in Eurasia, the people who formed these merchant castes, if you like, or classes, had the, have a preponderance of the gene. And just to tell you, just to tell you a little story, uh, in the late 60s, I was doing some work on well, I can't remember, something, industrial policy, something in India. And I interviewed uh, the head of a uh, sort of dynastic industrial house. He's pretty old, about 80, 85. And he was, you know, so he had to ask. So I asked him, you know, have you decided who you're going to leave your, uh, all, this, all these enterprises? He said he had. And he then told me, he said, what I did, it's probably apocryphal. He, then, I, he said about a few years ago, I gave each of my sons and grandsons, the possible heirs, I think a million dollars or something like it. And he said, go away. So they went away, and, you know, they made some, some use of this money. One grandson came back a year later, looking, you know, head hanging down. And he said, I've lost it all. Whereupon the, the old man said, you're my successor, you're my heir. So, so much, so much. So much for MBAs and business schools. You look around you. I mean, the people who are entrepreneurs today, they're either academic dropouts, very few of them are MBAs, and very few of them. So they're all, this is this risk-taking, novelty-seeking gene. Okay, now, given that, and given that these capitalists have existed, they are this risk-taking, novelty-seeking, involved in Schumpeterian creative destruction. You can see why settled agrarian civilizations didn't like them. So they've always been under threat. They're tolerated because the activities are necessary. These activities make them very rich because they're profit-seeking. And as a result, they're a standing temptation to the predatory state everywhere to make continual raids on them. 
So capitalism couldn't have, arist- couldn't have arisen, the institution we take as capitalism, just because of the existence of capitalists, because they existed. What is, what is the distinguishing feature which led to the rise of capitalism, which is a modern and, I would insist, a Western institution? And that brings to the story I told in my book, The Unintended Consequences. And there I said that this, the, what, the capital, what for capitalist, capitalism in, as a as an institution to arise, you had to find some way of protecting capitalists, particularly their property. And that arose as an unintended, inadvertent consequence of, of uh, a papal revolution, the Gregory, <coughs> Gregory the Seventh in 1075, where largely to protect church property, which is being stolen, that's another story, I won't go into it, he created the church state, which laid down all the, what we now call the commercial and legal infrastructure for a capitalist market economy. So this was created by the church. The church state then, because Western Christendom, this encompassed the whole of Western Europe, these property rights of capitalists were then protected right through the whole of Western Europe. We now have evidence, quantitative evidence, put together by Angus Madison. He's looked across, across all these Eurasian civilizations because after the fall of Rome, Western Europe was a dung heap, and uh, the great civilizations were, were <coughs> China, India, and then from about the 6th, 7th century, the, uh, the Arabs, the Abbasid uh, Empire. So when did, this, when did this great divergence, the slow, gradual rise of the West take place? And when did he find? End of the 11th century, which is 1075, which is the great papal revolution. So we have a lot of evidence that really the rise of the West, why it diverged, its path diverged from uh, these other great uh, civilizations. Goes back to this: the institutions which were created by Gregory the Great, by Gregory the Seventh, which created the commercial infrastructure to protect private property. Okay. Now, what is globalization being doing? The last two phases was the first one was under the British, and now we've got Pax Americana. So these, well, empires. I know people don't like me using the. E word about America, but I'm going to use it in any case because my last book was trying to justify that. Uh, but call it a Pax. The Pax Britannia, its main purpose was to, if you like, promote the interest of the gent- gentleman capitalists of the city. What they were trying to do was to globalize capitalism. Okay? And, and essentially by transferring these institutions which were created in this papal revolution at the end of the 11th century to the third world. And the effect was stupendous. I don't have time, but you can, do, you can either read this or my earlier book, which shows you that this is the first time in many parts of the third world experienced what we call intensive growth, sustained rise in per capita incomes. Okay, but with the end of the, the uh, 19th century liberal international economic order, the First World War, we had literally 40, 50 years of complete disorder until after the Second World War, the Americans chastened, they started rebuilding another international global order. But the difference between the First and the, the, the Brit- British and American order is that the Brit- Brits relied purely on classical liberal principles, unilateral free trade, okay, complete laissez-faire, and laissez-faire doesn't mean that the, the state is irrelevant. What you need to do under what laissez-faire says, and this is Adam Smith, that you need public goods, but you have to find a way in which predatory states, and all states are predatory, only tax us sufficiently to just provide enough finance for these essential public goods. And this, this held 
through, certainly in Britain, and countries influenced by it through the 19th century. The other two pillars were free mobility of labor and capital, and the gold standard, and of course, international property rights. Dense interweaving through treaties of international property rights, which were maintained all over the world. Now, all this whole system collapsed in the interwar period, and the Americans only started rebuilding it. But unlike the Brits, there were two major differences. One was the Americans have never believed in unilateral free trade. Even in the 19th century, I think the, when the average tariff never came down below about 40%. I'm not sure that many figures are here. So they never have. And they've always believed in reciprocity. That means they look upon foreign trade as a zero-sum game. You know, it's like warfare. If I disarm, then you can... I'm willing to disarm if you disarm. And that principle of reciprocity was written into the, the predecessor of the World Trade Organization, GATT, and that's what this whole multilateral trading bargaining has been based on. Now, it's been pretty successful because it has brought down, certainly in, develop, in uh, developed countries first, and now many developing countries, it's brought down the average rates of tariff quite substantially. But the whole thing is completely misguided. And, and, uh, and uh, what, what has transmuted itself into is a trading system in which the, this is, there's two tracks. And I'm sorry to say my old friend Bill Brock was responsible. In fact, I remember the, the moment when he decided this in a meeting. Uh, we used to have all these informal meetings with academics and trade negotiators in the early 80s. And he was trying to start a new trade run. And the Brazilians and Indians, to their shame, were resisting. So he said, oh, well, okay, if I can't start this, I'll start bilateral negotiations. And that's the beginning of all this huge spaghetti bowl of bilateral trade negotiations, the system which was set up. So that was one. The other thing, of course, they decided was, instead of the, like the Brits, and of course, there are very, very important historical reasons why they couldn't just, you know, just, just establish the gold standard again, have all the sort of institutions which the Brits had, in fact, no institutions to run the world. They had these other international institutions, the IMF, which is supposed to provide sort of surveillance and be able to run this gold exchange standard, and the World Bank, which was to overcome the, uh, the problems which had arisen largely because of a third world country and other countries' defaults in the 1930s, that the capital market for international lending had dried up. So there are very good reasons why these international, international institutions were set up, and they did, by and large, create, over time, certainly since the 1980s, a, a, another period when, uh, when, you, when you see globalizing, globalizing ca capitalism given its head. Okay, so why are people against this now? And the funny thing is most of the people fighting this now are actually here, sitting in these developed countries. Uh, I remember in the 1980s, uh, the BJP, which is the Hindu Nationalist Party, and I'll come to the cultural nationalists in a minute, they were fighting an election. Uh, what there was an election? Well, anyway, they were, they, were certainly try they were certainly whipping up this nationalist fervor. So I remember processions in New Delhi where L.K. Advani, who, who was the president of the BJP then, he was carrying these effigies of my old friend Arthur Dunkel, cat president then, wandering through the streets of New Delhi, and then they used to burn him in great ceremonies outside Parliament House, you know. Now, the same Advani and his BJP fought the last Indian general election on, the, on a platform of globalization, shining India, how the globalization had done something. So cultural nationalists, except for the world of Islam, have, have changed. And I'll talk about them in a minute. Okay, so we've got these two groups against global, against global cultural, the cultural nationalists and the, these, I call these new dirigees, the youngsters marching through the streets of Seattle, Genoa, Porto Alegre in Latin America. They're just 
I'll come to them in a minute. Let's just look at the cultural nationalists. Well, the trouble was, with the rise of the West, one of the things which happened, these other great Eurasian civilizations, partly because of the superior arms, they became literally wounded civilizations. And they had this terrible problem. They wanted to come to terms with modernity because they knew that this was the means to prosperity and more important power to resist this, this new encroachment from the West. But at the same time, they didn't want to lose their own traditions. I call them cosmological beliefs. Now, there were three responses to this. One was, which is epitomized by the Japanese, they immediately saw that they had to modernize. They had to adopt all the paraphernalia, including the, uh, the commercial other legal infrastructure created by Gregory VII, and the military arms, technology, science, education, all this sort of stuff. But they wouldn't give up their souls. They still continued being Japanese. So they adopted trappings of democracy, all this sort of stuff. But Japan, I mean, someone, you know, wandering around, uh, from the 16th century and looking at Japanese society and Japanese institutions today, I mean, it, looks, it might look different, but beneath it, it hasn't changed. So they recognized that you could modernize without westernizing. So that is one route. Okay? The second route was the route of the clan, I call it, which is uh, what the cultural nationalists took. The best example of this, as I know, and I'm giving the Islam now, because the peaceful, nonviolent example was Gandhi. Gandhi hated, though he was a barrister, he was trained in, in, uh, in the West, he hated the West. And his response to the West was rather like uh, Said Qutb, who was one of the leading Islamist founders of the Muslim Brotherhood. He hated the West. He thought it was evil, wicked, corrupt, immoral, disgusting. So he wrote a little pamphlet called Hind Swaraj when he was in South Africa. And this is a searing, biting indictment of uh, modernity. He hated lawyers, railways, all this. What he wanted to do is preserve that old, I call it the old Hindu equilibrium, ancient Hindu equilibrium in aspect. Okay, so that, so that was the cultural national, and that was then taken up by the BJP, the Hindu nationalist group. And this was a response which was found in many other, other just close in, keep the West out. Okay, and that of course is what the Islamist response is today. The third route was probably the most common. And this is to find a middle way between modernity and tradition. Okay? And here, this was the great attraction of, of creeds like Fabian socialism. Because socialism is, is two-faced, it's Jainist-faced. One element comes from the Enlightenment. This is the rational, you know, electricity plus powers, powers Lenin called it. So that's one. The second element is, comes from the Romantic revolt against the Enlightenment. That, you know, all this modernity is sort of destroying our souls. We, you know, life has become a desert and all this sort of stuff. And this was epitomized, for instance, by the young Marx. All this stuff on alienation, how all this industrial society is just ruining our souls. And then taken up by the humanist elements of British, uh, the British social, William Morris, Tony. The Webbs represented the Enlightenment strand. And this combination then became Fabian socialism. And if you look around, apart from China and Russia, for which very different reasons, we just took the Enlightenment strand of this. The others found this, uh, found, took this as a way of reconciling this. And there's a passage from Deirdre's Eiterberg, which is in the book, which actually incidentally can, can also now today, it contains my comparison, my latest comparison of India and China. That uh, he explicitly says this. He says this is the only way in which we can marry the old Brahminical principles uh, but still not give in to all the greed, monopoly, the usual sort of guff. And this then, so this was their way of doing it. Now, of course, that led to all the Dirigis dogma, all the other sort of stuff which I had, which I had uh, attacked in, my, in the part of the development economics. Now, it's taken India and China 150 years 
150 years, largely because of crises, they just to see that this was a dead end. So they now are doing what Japan did at the, under the Meiji Restoration, that they now realize they can continue to be Chinese and Indians of whatever sort, you know, Hindutva in India, communism in China, doesn't matter, I don't care what your cosmological beliefs are, but they have to, they can, be West, they can, uh, they can modernize without westernizing. And that's why you see this change in the attitude of the BJP, why the Communist Party of China, which starts off uh, you know, with all this, with this, oh, this old Didigi stuff now, has now literally created, certainly in the labor market, one of the most free class things, almost Dickensian capitalism, which is running rife there. So the, cult, uh, the, only, and the only place which is left, where you still got this, this reconciliation hasn't taken place, are the lands of Islam. Now, it's too big a subject to go in here. This book has something in it, but the old, my last book on empires has much more discussion of why that's arisen and uh, how one might get out of that jam. Okay, so that's it. Now, the last bit, the, the major part of the book is really dealing with what I call the new dirigis. This new stuff where they say, oh, we like markets, but we want capitalism with a human face. When I first read this, I said, I, you know, it seems meaningless. And they make all these statements about stakeholder care. So to try to get into it, what on earth are they talking about? Now, so a large part of the book is about this. Now, it turns out that behind all this are the very old complaints, again going back to the, uh, to the uh, Romantic Revolt, that, that capitalism and capitalists are all based on selfishness and greed. It's an immoral, wicked system. So morality in that sense seems to be impossible. Now, the point about this is that this, the recognition that uh, what you might call it, greed is not a self-interest, a much better term. That's a basic human uh, motive, and that is to be harnessed. That then does lead to uh, social gains. This is a very old principle. You know, you read in Adam Smith, David Hume. But they also recognized, and this is, runs right through the classical liberal tradition, people have forgotten, that this has, to, this has to be then embedded in some form of moral traditions, some form of moral convention. The best person to read this is Hume, quotations there you'll find. And if that bedrock goes, then this thing, then this thing might not last. Now this, was, this, of course, were the Victorian virtues, which in some senses is the, uh, is the epitomity, is, epitomizes uh, the uh, 19th century you know, liberal international economic order. That they provided the moral anchor to the capitalism there. And this was recognized even by Keynes. Let me give you a, let me give you a passage from the economic consequence of the peace. He said the 19th, which had, with 19th century LIU, which had brought prosperity around the world, depended on a shared morality, which emphasized above all the virtues of abstinence, prudence, calculation, and foresight, the basis for the accumulation of capital. The world's economic organization ultimately rested on the Victorian virtues. And the char character who in some, some sort of a popular sense embodied these virtues was the English gentleman. And this was a term uh, which was uh, used to denote, not, a dis not to, not to de denote a, a distinction of class or race or anything, but a uh, to denote a, dis a distinction of character. Here's a quote. James one is reputed to have said, I can make a lord when his old nurse begged him to make her son a gentleman, but only God Almighty can make a gentleman. And the gentleman was defined by his virtues of integrity, honesty, generosity, courage, graciousness, politeness, consideration for others. Now what has happened in the West, and this is another story which is in my unintended consequences summarized here, is that ever since the West lost its belief 
in some deep sense in the Christian God. Since then, it's, it's literally anything goes. And uh, what you've got then starts with Nietzsche, but it right goes down, and Keynes and his group were partly responsible for this, that they actually now, there are no moral anchors left, anything goes. And of course, this has been worsened by the 60s, Cultural Revolution, and all the other sort of stuff which we know. So in a sense, what, what these people are objecting, the modern cry against capitalism, is, and you know, what we see around us, is really not a cry against capitalism, which is the instrument of our prosperity, but against this moral degeneration, the moral disorientation of Western societies. Now, in, some, in, in a bizarre turn, turn of the wheel, as I said, these Victorian virtues now are much more often found amongst the burghers of Shanghai or Bombay than those of Wall Street or Hollywood. So, so that's, that's, that's the real rage. And many of the things that people are talking about. Now, the other stuff, I'm not going to go, we don't have time. It's very easy to shoot down what all this absurdity about stakeholder capitalism and all this is. But I do want to come back to one other element, which, is, which, is now, which has now got tremendous resurgence. And this is the other critique of uh, capitalism, and that is that it makes people unhappy. My old friend Richard Layard has written a book, and he now wants everyone, because they've, they've now got these world value surveys from which they can actually work out the elements of uh, happiness function, which the economist is really saying that we can actually estimate a social welfare function, <coughs> you know, where you've got all the components you crank out. What, what maximizes this policy and because governments all they have to do is Gordon Brown or, or uh, Hank Paulson now all they have to do is just implement this and what is more we can go around we can all carry these happiness meters which is one of Bentham's great fantasies which at every minute in time will tell us what is making us happy or unhappy anyway so this is a, this is a new game and they say that you know capital, now this is a very old complaint capitalism makes you unhappy and uh, so I just want to end by um, if I can find the passage uh, on this. Um, okay. Now, and of course, the, the communitarians, the, all these groups, they're really, they're really associated with this. Okay, the argument that two, two things, why capital? Firstly, it says it leads to status races. And the thing which makes people unhappy, it's not material goods, we can always acquire more material goods, but things which are really scarce are what are called positional goods. And we can't all have the, you know, to take, take what you think is the most, be most beautiful location for a house in the world, that's restricted. If too many people come in, that quality disappears. Or the prime minister for people who care about power, or president. So there are a lot of positional goods which give people, and of course a positional good by its very nature means that the other people who can't have that, that particular positional good, so it makes them happy. So the argument is to tax people in the status race more heavily. Layard, of course, suggests that work also makes people unhappy, so he wants people work to be taxed, another way of raising income taxes. Now, of course, the French have implemented this, if you know. They've actually, you know, introduced a 35-hour week. I go to France each year, I don't see them being any happier, and certainly the economy seems to be a collapse, so that, that's a counter. But, there's a, but, you know, Adam Smith, as you'd expect, has an answer to all this. It's a marvelous passage, the model sentiments, and I just want to read that to close in which he, discuss, he discusses this. And he says, happiness consists in tranquility and enjoyment. Without tranquility, there can be no enjoyment. And where there's perfect tranquility, there's scarce anything that is not capable of amusing. But in every permanent situation where there's no expectation of change, the mind of every man in a longer or shorter time 
returns to its natural and usual state of tranquility. In prosperity, after a certain time, it falls back to that state. In adversity, after a certain time, it rises up to it. The great source of both the misery and disorder of human life seems to arise from overrating the difference between one permanent situation and another. Avarice overrates the difference between poverty and riches, ambition, that between a private and public station, vainglory, that between obscurity and extensive reputation. Except the frivolous pleasures of vanity and superiority we may find in the most humble station where there is only personal liberty, every other which the most exalted can afford, and the pleasures of vanity and superiority are seldom consistent with perfect tranquility, the principle and foundation of all real and satisfactory enjoyment. Consider the conduct of almost all the greatly unfortunate, either in private or public life, and you will find that the misfortunes of by far the greatest part of them have arisen from their not knowing when they were well, when it was proper for them to, stir, to sit still and be contented. The inscription upon the tombstone of the man who had endeavored to mend a tolerable constitution by taking physic, quote, I was well, I wished to be better, here I am, may generally be applied with great justness to the distress of disappointed avarice and ambition. So, so much for happiness. Now, the last theme in this book is really looking at this huge international infrastructure of international institutions, which the U.S., unlike the Brits, created to globalize capitalism since the Second World War. Now, whatever the reasons for creating these, and there were good reasons, and these institutions did do a good work, good work I would say, until about the year 1980s in, in promoting this. Since then, many of these functions have disappeared. The IMF's real role disappeared with the ending of the gold exchange standard. The World Bank's role disappeared as soon as private capital markets became open to you know, well-governed, well-run developing countries. And the WTO has been completely stymied because of all these bilateral agreements. So these are completely dysfunctional. They're not doing anything. Now, what, is, what have they done? Each of these cases, they become conduits for all this soft, this soft, whatever you like to call it, moral stuff which is coming out, and which is largely represented in the rise in the NGOs. So these unofficial, unelected bodies now have found a channel. It's rather like communist, the Communist Party cells. Entryism is the thing they, they use. So they've used that to enter this. Now, this is the greatest threat, it seems to me, to a classical liberal order today. And these institutions now are the main purveyors of this, which includes the bank, which includes the fund, not the WTO so far, but I see the U.S. now wants to use it to bash, I can't remember this, about patent laws, about something or the other. So it's, these are not only, forget about this dysfunctional, they're actually doing great damage. And I think today there must, there's a very good case for shutting them down. They're literally just rent-seeking rent institutions, the middle classes who find, you know, this is, this is a good way of earning a living, but they're doing a great deal of damage. So they should be shut down. And, of course, the other thing which I think is absolutely essential, the U.S. actually propound the uh, classically liberal correct principle of unilateral free trade. Forget about all these bilateral things. Just tomorrow announced, as the Brits did one day, that our markets are open to any, any capital. It's a capital and trade flow. They can't uh, have free immigration for one very simple reason, the rise of the welfare state. In fact, that is the beginning of the slide away from classical liberalism. It starts with Bismarck's Germany, then liberal Lloyd George in Britain, and then Roosevelt's New Deal. And what's the problem with that? The problem with that is very simple. The welfare states creates property rights in citizenship. Any citizen 
under the welfare state has access to my pocketbook. So I'm obviously concerned about how many, how many there are and who these people are who have access to my pocketbook. So there's no way, it seems to me, to have free immigration without reform of the welfare state. If that is not on the cards, we're not going to get free mobility of labor. So here I am in this very anomalous position. In the 1980s, I was writing books, you know, bashing third world countries, telling them to become classical. They've heeded this. China has carried out the largest unilateral trade liberalization in history. It probably you talk to the mandarins there. Ah, they, they, sound like, they sound just like my friends from Chicago. I mean, there's, there's, there is, and increasingly India is going the same way. But where do we find all this, this Dirigi's dogma in this new, modernized, softened, postmodern form? It's in the US and Europe. So now, the, the real message now is that these people, the West now, must live up to its rhetoric, of the classical liberal rhetoric of uh, free trade and laissez-faire and uh, maintenance of institutions. The woes which they complain about are about the demoralization of their society. They have nothing to do with capitalism. And the best hope for us, whether you can or not do anything about demoralization for the world, is if we allow capitalism in a, which is, you say, in a derogatory sense, but I use it in applauding it, for capitalism to rip globally. Thank you. Thanks very much, uh, Deepak. Our next speaker is Ethan Capstein, and I'm sure he didn't appreciate Deepak's comments about uh, the role of business schools since he is a professor of sustainable development at INSEAD, a business school in Fontainebleau, France, and director of that business school's Business and Society Center. He's also a visiting fellow at the Center for Global Development, uh, some a little bit down the street uh, from here. And he, he is the author of this new book, Economic Justice in an Unfair World, which takes a uh, different view from, from Deepak's. His view is... Uh, one that calls for a strengthening of the society of a society of states, but it's a more nuanced view than I can easily summarize. So I'll let him uh, do that. Uh, Ethan Capstein has been uh, formerly a naval officer and an international banker. He has taught at Harvard University and the University of Minnesota. is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations and other uh, bodies. Please help me welcome Ethan Capstein. Thank you, Ian. Uh, thanks to Cato. And of course, it's great to share the podium with uh, Deepak Lal, who is indeed a legend in development economics. Uh, I might remind Deepak um, that the uh, Nobel Prize winning economist John Hicks once famously remarked that if measures making for efficiency, like unilateral trade liberalization, are to have a fair chance, they should be freed from distributive complications as much as possible. But distributive complications lie at the heart of political economy, and wishing them away amounts to wishing away politics, which is what I had a feeling Deepak uh, would like to do, wish away politics and political economy. In every country, some of the sharpest debates that exist are about questions of distributive justice, the allocation of who gets what, how much health care, income, education, food, do people receive? Should people receive? Can the free market always answer that question in a way that is politically acceptable? 
The answer is probably no. And as John Rawls famously remarked, we should recall that justice and efficiency are not the same thing. Now, whatever the merits of global economic arrangements in terms of efficiency, and of course economists teach us that efficiency would be maximized by free flows of trade and investment, unhindered by the grabbing or predatory hand of states, in recent years we have indeed heard from many different quarters that the global economy operates in a way that is fundamentally unfair, particularly to developing countries and to the poor within them. But this implies that there are questions about the distributive complications associated with increasing globalization or with the justice or fairness of existing arrangements. Now, this is not something coming just from the left uh, or from NGOs. It comes from mainstream quarters, from Harvard economists, from former world bankers. Uh, President of the World Bank, James Wolfenson, once remarked that something is wrong with a global economy in which 1.2 billion people still live in poverty. Joe Stiglitz said that no one expects the world market to be fair. The Belgian foreign minister has called upon the international community to create an ethical globalization, and the former Irish president, Mary Robinson, has something called the Ethical Globalization Initiative. Deepak cited the UN reports with titles like a uh, globalization with a human face. And of course, the international subs uh, community has subscribed to the Millennium Development Goals, which of course uh, imply that we will work to reduce global poverty by half by the year 2010. I live, your, I live in Europe. I live in France quite comfortably. Thank you, Deepak, uh, where most people live quite comfortably and happily, as far as I can tell. Um, and, uh, you know, I will take a weekend in Dordogne any day over a weekend in Disneyland, I must confess. But, uh, say, uh, everyone has their own taste. Chaque la son goût, as we say in France. Uh, but one thing we find in Europe is uh, on the shelves now of every shop, uh, there are ethical or fair trade products. And even the multinational firms like Unilever and Nestle are uh, promoting their ethical or fair trade products. And of course, this suggests that the other products are somehow unethical or unfair. Uh, so there's no shortage of concern with the ethics, the morality, the moral underpinnings of international economic policies and institutions. But there is certainly is no dominant morality like perhaps the Victorian virtues were for a short period of time and which I believe were much more contested within Britain and outside of it than Deepak seems to suggest. Today, as then, people have very different views about the meaning of economic or distributive justice at the international level. And indeed, people hold quite contradictory views at the same time. But as Trollope's Mr. Melmut said, as Deepak certainly knows from that uh, book, you should know what justice is before you demand it. And the purpose of my book, Economic Justice in an Unfair World, is to bring some clarity to what a fairer, more just global economy might look like, a politically feasible fairer global economy, because I think we have to keep our eye on the ball of political feasibility in any discussions of morality or justice as well. Now, in today's talk, I know time is running short, and I'm standing between you and lunch, which is always a very bad position to be in. Uh, so I'd like to outline, uh, I'd just like to do kind of three things in, in 10 minutes or so. First, I'd like to outline very quickly uh, some of the different ways in which people think about international economic justice. 
Second, I'd like to just sketch my own uh, theory, uh, the one that informs the book. And finally, I'd like to suggest the policy relevance of the approach that I'm advocating and to distinguish it uh, from the approach being advanced by the major international institutions. And in fact, there is much more agreement between Deepak and myself than I've led on so far. So let me begin with what I call the three models of international economic justice. Again, when people say that the global economy is unfair or unjust, they generally have quite different things in mind. First, many people, particularly in Western Europe, hold that increasing globalization or mondialisation, and it's true it's become something of a, a dirty word in, in France, uh, is unfair because it is undermining domestic economic arrangements like the welfare state. And I call this the communitarian view of international economic justice. And it holds that the very purpose of globalization was to support rather than undermine welfare state institutions, to support domestic social compacts within the industrial countries. It's what John Ruggie famously called the bargain of embedded liberalism. International economic arrangements are unfair contemporary international economic arrangements are unfair because they've unleashed a set of competitive pressures that are making it impossible to maintain the post-war cradle-to-grave bargains that the state struck with its own society in the wake of two catastrophic wars, incidentally, which, of course, also helped promote welfare state politics. It is because of this ongoing concern in the industrial world with the fraying of domestic economic arrangements that economists have launched a major research program on the effects of globalization on such variables uh, as employment, unemployment, uh, income distribution. Of course, my colleague Bill Klein at the CGD has done some of the pioneering work in this area. So the communitarian perspective assesses global economic arrangements in terms of their effect on nation states and the domestic social compacts that those states have, like the welfare state. A second approach, the one that has been seized upon by the World Bank and is explicit in the UN Millennium Development Goals, is called cosmopolitanism. And it emphasizes the effects of globalization on the poor, no matter where they are located. The cosmopolitan perspective holds that state borders have no ethical meaning whatsoever and that people should have the same life chances no matter where they are born. This means that the international community has a duty and justice to target those who are most vulnerable and to lift them up through targeted poverty-reducing foreign aid interventions. Some people would even call for widespread income redistribution at the international scale from an incredibly rich Bill Gates in Seattle, Washington, to the Mexican smallholder in Chiapas. <laughs> Indeed, the notion that global poverty reduction should be at the heart of contemporary international economic arrangements is now taken for granted. As Robert Wade of LSE says, it's the motherhood and apple pie of contemporary development thought. Now, the note that one finds, again, in contradictory fashion, uh, people who hold both the communitarian and cosmopolitan perspective. So my dear neighbors in Paris who defend the 35-hour work week and retirement at 55 and who claim that globalization, including migration into France, is imperiling those hardwood benefits would have us believe that they are in solidarité with the global poor and fully support a variety of initiatives that the 
French president routinely proposes, like uh, last week or this <coughs> week, uh, there are so many, uh, a, a, an airline, a tax on airline tickets. He loves taxes on, of course, the French love taxes. This uh, tax he loves is on airline tickets. And this week, the tax on airline tickets is to help eradicate HIV AIDS. A couple of months ago, it was to eradicate global poverty. A few months before that, it was for global development. So, um, you know, people believe that uh, you can hold these different views simultaneously, that you can actually try and preserve well welfare state uh, values while preventing uh, people from migrating to your country, limiting globalization, but also improving the plight of the global poor. The third, third view, and the one I defend in the book, is what I call the liberal internationalist take on international economic justice. And this view holds that state borders have ethical meaning, and it is that governments are accountable to their people for the decisions they make with respect to international economic policy for the simple reason that they sign treaties and agreements with respect to trade, finance, and so forth. In short, it is governments that, for better or for worse, authoritatively fix the world's normative structure. Now, given a world in which governments build authoritative international regimes on the one hand, while overseeing polities with very different social compacts on the other, the French desire more leisure than the Americans, the Chinese desire no leisure at all, the Indians, you know, have, have their own shtick. The question is how to reconcile these diverse social compacts with an authoritative international regime that every state believes is fair to it. That's the problem. How do we take 165 states, or how many there are this week, with their diversity of social compacts from French welfare states to sauvage capitalism in China um, with some authoritative international structure in which everyone agrees that this works to its own advantage. And this is really what my uh, book is about. And I argue that the primary responsibility of the international community or this society of states is to provide the background conditions that enable each and every state to do as well as it can, given its unique preferences and policies, its unique domestic social compact. Now, the question is, what background conditions would enable every society to do as well as it can? And the view that I defend in the book are, in fact, I think, uh, positions that would be supported by uh, Deepak Lal, uh, because I do believe that uh, free trade and open investment regimes are essential to enabling states to uh, do as well as they can, coupled with limited foreign aid to help particularly developing countries enter this international trade regime. Free trade obviously helps states exercise their comparative advantage and, at least in theory, converge toward the world's long-range rate of growth. To be sure, the case for free trade is a unilateral one. But a world in which high levels of protection impede particularly developing countries' ability to export their way uh, to greater growth, I think, is a world that is fundamentally unjust. And I think focusing on these international arrangements that currently structure global economic arrangements lead us to some of the very important sources of unfairness in today's global economy. Indeed, I might almost be as cynical as to think that the whole focus on global poverty is to lead us away from states and their responsibility for the arrangements they have made, many of which are quite uh, unfair. So note that I do not believe that a, an objective of international economic justice is 
global poverty reduction because I don't believe there is any such thing as global poverty. I believe there's French poverty, American poverty, Chinese poverty. Poverty is a terrible thing, but every state will have to solve its poverty problem in its own particular way. Americans have this mythical belief in equality of opportunity. Uh, the Scandinavian states believe more in equality of resources. Hey, I don't have the answer to uh, solving poverty and let a thousand flowers bloom. Let countries learn from each other. Okay? And uh, as I say, I think that what the international community should be doing in justice is to create an international system that is inclusive, participatory, and welfare-enhancing for each and every state, uh, rather than pursue allegedly cosmopolitan aims. Let me just quickly, can I take one more minute, uh, Ian? Uh, I think this focus on international arrangements is very helpful in uh, illuminating some of the issues where reform really is uh, essential, where the existing structures uh, can be considered unfair or unjust. So take the World Trade Organization, which for good reasons of domestic political economy do rely, as uh, Deepak said, on reciprocal trade negotiations. And basically what the WTO is, it's a deal between the U.S. and the EU that if the U.S. opens its borders to a billion dollars of European goods, the Europeans will open its borders to a billion dollars of American goods. Uh, now the problem is developing countries just can't play in that reciprocal sandbox. They're too small. Okay? They're not worth the trade negotiator's time to bother with. Uh, except in a few uh, exceptional cases now, Brazil, India, uh, China. And because they have no voice in reciprocal trade negotiations, they can't get their interests on the table in, say, agricultural liberalization. It's the structure of the trade regime that makes it impossible for them to get voice. Now, Deepak says, well, unilateral trade liber liberalization. Well, that has occurred with respect to developing countries, but only in areas that are of interest to the United States and the European Union, not necessarily in the sectors that are of interest to developing countries. They can't get their interests on that table because there's no room for reciprocal uh, agreements with them. And so they get what's called this special and differential treatment. I, in the book, call for a system of what's called diffuse reciprocity, which means you do lock developing countries into negotiations. You do have reciprocal trade agreements with them, but not of the kind of tit-for-tat equality that you would expect between the U.S. and E.U., you demand liberalization in the industrial countries, but also from the developing countries uh, themselves. That should be part of any trade package. And in the book, I try and advance a number of ideas with respect to the trade regime, labor and migration, investment, where I think one can make politically feasible because welfare-enhancing proposals. Uh, so to summarize, a fair or just world economy would be one that enables each and every state to do as well as it can, given its own resources and policies and preferences. Widespread dis distribution from rich to poor is neither desirable nor, I hasten to add, politically feasible, in that it would be welfare-reducing for at least one side in the transaction. Fortunately, a redistributive mechanism exists, and that is called trade. And by enabling countries to trade and obtain investment, by providing limited foreign aid to help countries uh, enter the international economy, the society of states will have gone a very long way toward building a more just and more fair world. Thank you. Thanks. <clears throat> Thanks very much, Ethan. I think that Deepak wants to say 
uh, a few words uh, in response? Can I speak from here? Okay. Well, I just wanted, I mean, I, I just wanted to say two, two very small things. Uh, I mean, this whole point which uh, the previous speakers made about distributive justice, this is the heart of the divergence from classical liberalism to what I call these various forms of diligence. And it actually starts with John Stuart Mill. This is a funny thing. John Stuart Mill, if you read the economic principles, the first part is the codification of you know, how classical liberal economy will run. He then, in the second part, make, makes the following statement. And this has then colored the views, like the ones we've just heard. And let me just read out. This is what Mill said. The laws and conditions of the production of wealth partake of the characters of physical truth. This is efficiency. There's nothing or, or, uh, optional arbitrary in them. It is not so with distribution of wealth. This is a matter of human institutions solely. Hence, you know, you choose whatever institutions, your global fairness, whatever it is. The things once there, mankind individually or collectively can do with them as they like. They can place them at the disposal of whomsoever they please on whatever terms. Now, Hayek used to call this the manna from heaven notion of distribution. All goods are there. And the funny thing is that even Marx, in fact, no classical economists, no matter what their political persuasion, believe this. Because they thought that they, they all said there may be a choice between alternative economic system with different arra distributive arrangements, but there is no, but, there, you, but you don't have the, the freedom to mix the economic production conditions of one system with the distributive system, uh, mechanism of another. And we've learned that lesson rather painfully through what's happened. What is more, even economic theorists, they're referenced to all these modern people who rediscovered this truth, that uh, this whole notion you can separate equity and efficiency doesn't work, partly because the equity aspects and efficiency are tied with particular institutions they, or, or, or uh, particular forms which yield, yield efficiency and then give you equity in what form or the other. And you can't just choose this. Say, you know, I'll get this most efficient thing and then take it out and and they're distributed. And hence the whole of welfare economics, really, which is, you know, which is the prop you can, intellectual prop you can rely on, is really worthless. Because it's essentially based on this and finding second, third best uh, means to you know, maximize this, trade off equity with it. This is, but this is not a feasible option in the real world. And great error has been committed by this. The second one I want to make is all this corporate social responsibility. Yeah, a lot of companies are doing this. My classic example is Nike. I've forgotten this chap's name who started creating the morally responsible company. Within two years, he trashed it. It went bankrupt. In the, in the last bear market, uh, people funds which, were, which refused to invest in tobacco and moral grounds did extremely badly because tobacco is one of the more resilient stocks in this. So yes, I, I know nothing against people sort of putting their money where their models are, but it seems to me to say that you must put, put your money where your models are seems to be a recipe of a disaster. So I, I don't, I, I think there's a lot of, and you know, all this other stuff. I mean, you named all these people who now say the general consensus. Well, I heard there was a general consensus in the 60s and 70s when I wrote my first, first book. There were all, all sort of very famous names saying, yeah, oh, Didigi's dogma, you must supplant the price back, the only way developing countries can grow. And these are the old suspects. Robert Wade, Joe Stiglitz, Christ. You can't tell me this, this tells, this is a, this is a, these, these authoritative figures which tells us what universal truths are. We have time for questions and answers. 
If you have a question, please raise your hand and identify yourself and your affiliation and wait for the, wait for the microphone to, to come and let us know who you're directing your question is. Who has questions? Okay, there's one right there. for environmental security and sustainability. Uh, Professor Lau, you, uh, the moral decay that you um, describe, where does that come from? Is it, you describe it as Hollywood and, and uh, Wall Street as examples of it, is it completely unmoored and unconnected um, from capitalism as a system? Uh, that's one question. And the other question is on migration. If you create a totally liberal system, classically liberal, without migration being included in that, does that create distortions on fairness? Uh, and to conclude, uh, if your thesis is correct about the hypomania or that you subscribe to, Sorry, by what? hypomania, wouldn't the walkers, uh, the migrants, uh, be of such character that they would not uh, really take advantage of the welfare system and it would be a, still a good, uh, a good um, uh, business for the countries that are receiving them? Okay, let's let me deal with the migration thing. Have you absolutely? There's no. I mean, the economic case for migration is extremely strong. There's no case whatsoever. I think it's purely because politics won't allow you free migration because of the creation of the welfare state. Because you've got. I mean, you know, it's rational for people not to allow free immigration if they know that will mean there'll be so many more citizens who can actually make a charge through your tax system on your on your income. So that's perfectly rational. So it's nothing to do with the merits of immigration. You're absolutely right. And similarly, you're quite right. I mean, people bringing in all these potential entrepreneurs is a very, very good thing. Now Europe, which has so far been very laggard in allowing immigrants, has suddenly realized this, partly because the population is collapsing. But at the same time, they bring the, they bring the verve, the, the energy, and that's the great strength of the U.S. So I, I absolutely take that point. I forgot what the first one was before the immigration point. Well, are, uh, the moral decay that you described... Yeah. Well, but these were they were cons the constraints were removed. Remember, these constraints are internalized moral constraints. They were first removed in Britain. I know the story. It starts with this amoral generation, the sort of the apostles in Cambridge, around Keynes, and he, they, he explicitly says we wanted an amoral society, no rules, nothing at all. We just choose what we want to do. And then the 60s, as everyone knows, is a hinge. That's the, that's the, and now there's something in the book, you'll find, you know, references to all this. And that was then taken advantage, I mean, you know, if you create a climate where anything goes, there are no moral restraints, nothing whatsoever, then if you're a capitalist, you, I mean, capitalists, they're, they're searching for profit. If this is profitable, they'll do it. So Hollywood, in, I mean, whether they've actually worsened the situation, and a lot of people argue this, there's evidence which says Hollywood has actually made the thing worse, but that, that uh, moral decay which they've helped to promote, if you like, would not have been possible without this decaying of these inhibitions, controls, whatever you like to call it, with the, with the traditional virtues provided. And that's something which you still find very difficult to restore in some senses. I mean, people, you know, people are doing it all sorts of ways, but very difficult to restore. Question right there. Ed Schilling with Ecologica Deepak. It's good to see you after a long time. We were colleagues together at the bank at one point. And I want to follow up on this previous question because you've admitted that capitalists, um, without the ethical morals of Victorianism, uh, can be as predatory as certain governments. And you've also admitted that the 
um, capitalist theoreticians admit that you need some government to protect and manage public goods in a reasonable way. So the conclusion of this is you need a governance system that constrains not only the predatoriness of efforts to reallocate, but also constrains the capitalist to behave in a proper manner. Now, we also know from theory, Kenneth Errol and others, that the free market economics is objective and not normalist, so it is indifferent in the results whether all the wealth goes to 10 people or is widely spread out. That is separate from the moral and ethical values that the church you talked about and others would like to have where the poor are taken care of, and if you read the Bible carefully, that is forgiven on occasion. So how do you... Um, reconcile these moral and ethical values with the predatory capitalists, and what kind of a governance system would you like to see in place to manage this in a reasonable way? Well, there are two, two separate questions. You need an ethical anchor, moral anchor for capitalism. It's absolutely true. Both society, civilization in the past, including this one, it provided this through I mean, called it religious beliefs or what have you, and this is really sort of socializing children and telling the truth you know, not stealing other people's property and all this, and also taking care, I mean, altruistically. Uh, Adam Smith called it sympathy. So that all that is true. Now, that went, and there are contingent historical reasons for this in the West, okay? But largely because, and you're absolutely right, the, the West is egal it has this egalitarian morality. It's disappearing, but that, that is associated with what I call the culture-specific values of its Christian heritage. Okay, but Christians, the people propound they're, they're Christians. I mean, in their personal behaviors, I want to and see it. It's not actually evident apart from actually proclaiming that they're Christians. So there is a deep, I mean, there's a passage here from, from uh, the philosopher Alistair McIntyre. And he does say people, people's moral values today are such a mishmash, they're so incommensurable, you can't actually say, you know, or, or chide someone for behavior which in the past would have been considered evil, wicked, immoral, what have you. Now, given that sort of situation, I can see why, then you have to bring in the law. See, the law, in, the best way of, of, of controlling all these other nasty habits is by internal, that's what every internet, that's why morality arose. Conventions, traditions, that's what Hume says. That's the purpose of morality, to tame. Mill called it creating character, to tame our natural instincts, if you like. Okay, and every civilization had this. This civilization had this. But those were removed. And the last straw on that was, uh, was the, the demoralization from the 60s revolution and all that follows. And the irony is, these people marching through the streets of all this, they want all that. They want all this uh, demoralization which has occurred. But then they want to bash the capitalism which has created the prosperity which only allows them to actually behave in this immoral way now. Because they're on the breadline, I mean, they'd have to soon find some sort of way of instilling some morality so they actually survive and cooperate. So I, I don't, I, I think you're absolutely right. You do need this, but you don't need, I mean, ideally, this is not, and the governments aren't very good at it. This all this attempt, that's why I don't believe this communitarian stuff. As some have said, communitarians just want to have another salem without believing in witches. I mean, you know, you can't, you can't. Uh, Governments can't do this, moral paternalism and social paternalism. That's, my, that's just worse, worse than disease. So ultimately, it's civil society, whatever you like to call it, which has to do it. In, in between, all you can do is put some sort of laws. So when Ron Chab goes and steals, you put him in jail. There's not much more you can do. There's a question in front here. Lucia Worthington, University of Maryland, University College. I teach business. 
uh, although my background is in history and philosophy, so uh, it's a bit of an odd combination. But I also see, um, I, I'm wondering why uh, either, uh, both of you did not address the new communication system, and civil disobedience has become much more of a problem now uh, because you have people across globalization as civil disobedience um, because of inequalities. Uh, so capitalism, the old models of capitalism that you use may work in some segments where there is in fact a, a, a strong legal system and a control system, but civil disobedience, we, when you're looking at bloggers, and the World Trade Organization uh, incident in Seattle where I was then teaching international business, uh, trying to tell my students uh, where uh, protectionism uh, may be good or bad, uh, trying to get students to, to see this. So where do you, where do you, how do you place the internet and a global civil disobedience? Well, uh, I don't think I can actually speak to that specific question, but I, I would say more generally, I would agree with Deepak in having some concerns about uh, the role that non-governmental organizations are playing in the articulation of what I would call soft law, um, which I think is becoming increasingly powerful in, in some sectors. Um, you know, Deepak might make light of corporate social responsibility, and I can fully appreciate it, but it's not really interesting what his view is. What's interesting is what business people act upon. And business people increasingly think it's important that they have to have a series of actions that are justified not just to their shareholders, but to their stakeholders. Again, we can all think it's nonsense. It doesn't really matter what we think. Those are the guys who actually have to invest the money, and they uh, are concerned about this, again, broader set of actors who can shape their businesses. And I do think that this is, is troubling from a number of perspectives when particularly, you know, Western-based uh, non-governmental organizations believe they can impose behavior that allegedly will benefit people in developing countries. Uh, higher labor standards, uh, you know, higher wages, health and safety standards. Um, you know, I, I do believe it is a, a system, uh, a kind of soft governance structure uh, that raises some real issues of legitimacy. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think they will become increasingly important for economists, business people, uh, political scientists to take account of going forward. It's not just state actors anymore. We'll take another question here in front. Uh, Martin Hutchinson, the Bears Lair columnist. Uh, Mr. Lal, the other thing that um, we had in the 19th century, apart from stronger values, was the gold standard and um, money that was objective and not run by government. And that, of course, imposed a discipline on the markets. I mean, Trollope's Mr. Melmot went bust in six weeks. And with fiat money creation that always seems to find a way to create more money, don't we now have a system whereby bad behavior is insufficiently punished and indeed may be able to do an IPO and make itself a billionaire? And isn't that part of the problem? Well, I wish I could support you on this gold bug thing. Uh, I would have a few years. You know, one of the surprising things which has happened, and I think economists have to be given credit for this, is that we now finally know 
not not perfectly, how to manage a fiat currency system. And it's true that you have you depend entirely entirely on the judgment of some people, but you know pretty well how to manage this. And whether or not you know the, the other point is the fluctuations which take place against whatever sort of trend. These are these are endogenous to the capitalism, I mean, rising animal spirits, etc. So the, this false belief that you could actually control this. Uh, in fact, I can speak something on that. Which is, I mean, that now unfortunately that only that only survives in the in the international area. People still believe you can stop debt crises happening there. You can stop all that, which is not true. Or you can create an international architecture where everything is fair. This is all, these are all utopian pipe dreams. But we do know how, within a particular, you know, so that you don't make things worse, which is all you can hope for. And that, I think, is a lesson which we have, by and large, learned now, by trial and error and making terrible mistakes. So fiat currency, I think we know how to manage. So I'm not so worried about that. I would have been 10, 15 years ago. We have time for at least one more question, and we can take one from over here. Thank you. Mario Villarreal from the American Enterprise Institute. Professor Kapstein, uh, I would like you, if you could uh, tell us a little bit about what is the source of your hope uh, um, on an international agreement with the state as its center in dealing with issues about prosperity, inequality, and especially in the light of all, all of the, those types of arrangements that we have before have not been very successful in dealing with it. Well, you know, the, the issue is at the end of the day, it's still the state that does create the authoritative normative structure in spite of, you know, uh, growing contestation from non-state actors. Um, but I don't think we should uh, let the state off. And as I say, I do think that the focus on global poverty reduction, for example, is in a sense a way of letting states off their responsibilities. Uh, for creating uh, an international environment that enables each country to do as well as it can. And that's why I think it's extremely important to bring clarity to issues of fairness, equity, justice. Again, Deepak might like to wish them away, as Hicks wanted to wish away distributive complications, as maybe he wants to wish away politics. But unfortunately, politics exist, domestic politics, international politics politics, they exist, they will be with us, and that means that issues of distributive justice, domestic, international, will be with us. So let's not wish them away, let's analyze them in a positive, rational way, and think about, as I said, welfare-enhancing proposals that can at least advance the agenda in a way that does, I think, make for uh, a better uh, world, meaning a world that is welfare-enhancing for each state, allows each state to um, address its own social compact. I mean, that's really the objective of my exercise, is to bring clarity and to try and illuminate and, and place a focus on the state's role in that uh, structure. As I say, at a time when we tend to be very much captured by cosmopolitan views of the international system. I have a question for Deepak. Are you wishing, trying to wish away politics, or are you, like Ethan, uh, trying to convince policymakers that your view is valid? I said they want to wish away politics. I, I'm, not, I'm not a fool. The classical liberals were the few people that, who actually had, the reason you, you had classical liberal principles, Reed Smith and you, 
was precisely because they knew exactly what politics was. They knew exactly the, the self-seeking nature of politicians. And the reason why they advocated, you know, the, the, the system which they advocated, was precisely to put fetters on politicians and try and make them do the things which they should be doing and not do the things that they should. So to say that I'm arguing in politics is absolutely ridiculous. Although I don't recognize politics as even absurd. But I certainly do not believe that the purpose of politics, which is, this is just playing the old game, politics is redistribution. I know that's that. But the point is you must find ways in which politicians don't play this game to the advantage of themselves, which is what they all do, predators, but in, in, as, in, really in the interests of the, of, the, of the public wheel, which is a rhetoric, but not the reality. Well, I know that you don't agree, but I certainly hope that you're right. I want to thank everybody for joining us today, and especially for our two authors who will be selling their books at a discount uh, right outside the door or upstairs. And please uh, join us for lunch. <laughs>